Hi, this is Justin Sosa, and welcome to Hangfire, a Rolling Stones podcast. Hey everyone, Justin here from the Hangfire podcast, and we're back with a super special chat today. Our guest really needs no introduction because most fans know all about him. His journey is absolutely incredible. The whole story unfolds in his fantastic book, Under Their Thumb, How a Nice Boy from Brooklyn Got Mixed Up with the Rolling Stones and Lived to Tell About It. It's a definite must-read for any Stones fan out there. So needless to say, I'm absolutely stoked to have Mr. Bill German here today. Bill, hello and welcome. Hello, great to be here, Justin. Oh man, I am so thrilled to have you here and to talk to you. Um, like I said, the book is uh, totally required reading for the for Stones fans. And when I was reading it, it it's such a page turner because I feel like I'm such I'm in your shoes as um, I'm going through the book. And um, I just have to ask, how often do you think to yourself, "Wow, I used to pal around with the Stones all the time in New York City." It does seem like a different lifetime in a way because, you know, what I did really can't be done today. And that's not a pat on my own back. It's just like where the stones have gone, where society has gone. Um, but yeah, I mean, 40 years ago, they really did walk the streets like regular human beings with no bodyguards. And they would go to nightclubs like three or four times a week. Uh, you know, and they were all living here. I don't mean all, but, you know, Mick and Keith and Woody were all living here, the three of those guys. And, you know, they loved to press the flesh. And it was like during the times of like the punk rock movement here or kind of like post-punk. And so they wanted to go out there and sort of be part of that. And so they were going to nightclubs, uh, you know, like CBGBs. There's a great picture of Mick going to check out the jam. If you remember the jam, Paul Weller. Uh and, uh, and, you know, they would go to this other club, the Ritz that opened like in 1980, that was owned by Jerry Brandt, who they knew from way back, by the way, he used to be their booking agent. Um, you know, he booked all their tours. He was friends with Andrew Lugo and all that. And, <clears throat> and so they would hang out at the Ritz like two, three nights a week. And you knew that if Chuck Berry was playing or Peter Tosh was playing or Tina Turner, you know, they would be there. One of them at least would be there. Sometimes get on stage and play. Um, but yeah, so it, it's a, it was a different time, a very accessible time uh, as far as the Stones. And yeah, a teenage kid really could just walk down the street and say hello to the Rolling Stones. Yeah, I know. And, and I think that's what makes, well, I know for sure that's what makes your book special is because during this period, like you alluded to, the Stones were New Yorkers during this time and like you said in the book it, it was pretty cool to know that you're all drinking the same water breathing the same air same water, yeah yeah and of course you know it's it's reflected in the albums at that time you know some girls obviously has a ton of new york references and shattered all song about the city um you know and then the very first words of emotional rescue is hey what are we doing here on you know eighth street and sixth avenue yeah was the location of electric lady studios um, so yeah, they really were on A Street and 6th Avenue. Well, we're going to get into all the details of how that all unfolded. And so we're going to highlight some stories from the book uh, on this chat. And I invite you to do as many Stones impressions as you can. All right. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we'll fit a couple in for you, Justin. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I and if if we have time, I, I, if you can, have you ever taught anyone how to do a Mick impression? Because I would like to know how to do it, but I just don't know where to get in. Yeah, I just like I, I yeah, no, I I I'll, I'll work on that. Yeah, maybe I'll teach a class. Yeah, I think you should have like a YouTube session because you can do a great Mick, you can do a great Keith. So I think uh, people know how to do you know all the like Paul McCartney, and I've I've worked on Ronnie Wood as well, actually. Yeah. Yeah, you know, mostly it's, you know, Keith and Rick, you know, those are the ones. You know, you hang around long enough with them and it just rubs off, you know. Whoa, fantastic. I mean, you're, you're like a walking SNL of the Stones or something. You can do, you actually, I actually think about doing, if I get enough encouragement from you guys, um, no, I seriously think of doing a one man show as Keith. And the additional kicker would be that it would be quotes that he gave me personally during interviews or even just conversations that I remember. And maybe I could fill up you know, like a 40 minute, 60 minute uh, show off, 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 off Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> I would fucking go to that. That's for sure, Bill. So please consider doing that. Yes. Okay. It's on the agenda. I was thinking about this conversation and I think it's so important for people to really kind of remind them what it was like to be a music fan in the 60s. And and the reason why I want to go there for a little bit is because we're so used to this world now. The internet, our phone, Twitter, for anyone who's a fan of anyone, it's just follow their social, follow their Instagram. You can see what Taylor Swift had for dinner yesterday. But before the internet, I'd imagine things were quite limited with how much you wanted to follow your favorite bands. So uh, could you paint a little picture just, you know, how it could have been possible to learn more about the Stones when you were a young fan in the 60s or the 70s? You had limited resources. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it was all magazines and books, obviously. And if you were lucky, you know, there would be an interview or an appearance on some show. You know, I write in Under Their Thumb that to me, so I was born in 1962. And so when the Stones appeared on SNL, to me, I said that was like my Beatles on Sullivan, in my opinion. Maybe it had to do with the fact that it's a live show and, you know, but it's just like this, to me, the Stones took over, not just New York, but they took over America when they appeared on SNL in October of 78. But um, but besides that, um, magazines and books. So my sister had this book um, written by David Dalton. I know some of you guys still have this book. It came out in 1972. And it was more or less a collection of his articles that he wrote for Rolling Stone. Um, and so that was my Bible. That was like my first Rolling Stones book. I know some people have it. No one has it in perfect condition. Like my copy, I wish I had it around here to show you, but my copy, like the cover fell off like 40 years ago. But anyway, so, you know, I read that book and then I started getting Rolling Stone magazine and Queen magazine. And then even like, rock scene magazine which was primarily about new york city but you know hey well mick just went to go check out this band or you know here's um mick and keith having a party you know somewhere or you know whatever they go to see peter tosh or so that's how you did it and then you know i found out that well there's fanzines which you know were very big in the punk rock movement and they were like the whole do-it-yourself movement but some fanzines focused on just a specific group, you know. So there were Beatle fanzines. And when I started mine, Beggar's Banquet, there were a couple of Stones fanzines that existed. 
And I thought like, wow, these are so cool. It is just about the Rolling Stones. But they didn't have like the journalistic thing going, which, you know, in addition to me loving the Stones, I love journalism. I was a news junkie before they called it a news junkie. Um, and I was watching like Walter Cronkite, reading all three New York newspapers every day as a kid. I just needed to marry the two together, my love of the Stones and my love of journalism. And I took journalism classes in high school and at NYU where I majored in journalism. And I figured, let me, you know, put that knowledge into a Rolling Stones fanzine. So that's what I did. And, um, you know, somehow it lasted for over 17 years. You mentioned these fantastic fanzines you saw around with other bands in the punk rock scene sort of thing. So you said, I think it's my turn to kind of put something together for the Stones and humble beginnings. Yeah. Well, it really was a matter of like, hey, I can do this. And so, uh, you know, and the great thing about fanzines back then was that like they kind of promoted unprofessionalism. <laughs> right. Most of them were handwritten. Some of them were mixed. Uh, so like my fanzine was mixed. So I had um, the interior was typed, mm. uh, which I would type it like on a borrowed typewriter. I first started on my mom's typewriter. She has a 1940s Underwood. And um, and then like I borrowed friends typewriters and all that to get it all done. The covers were like hand drawn and, you know, because you couldn't get headlines to be like big. There was right. you know what I mean? and like copying machines didn't even have like enlargers, uh, you know, an enlarge button and uh, there was no way to do it. So it was great that like unprofessionalism, non-professionalism like worked for a fanzine. So, you know, in the days leading up to my 16th birthday in September 1978, I really felt like, hey, I can do this. There were a couple of Stones fanzines that already existed. And I said, you know, frankly, I can do better than these people. And what helped was that I was in New York City. And so I started getting like little scoops that you wouldn't know otherwise because it's not going to make the media. It's not going to make Rolling Stone magazines, random notes thing, you know, like, oh, Ronnie Wood went to this nightclub. Keith went to this nightclub. Nick went to that nightclub. But for me, for a Stones fan, like that's big news. And so if I put it in my little stupid fanzine, someone out in Iowa you know, a big Stones fan might say like, hey, wow, you know, I, I would have had no idea that Mick showed up and, you know, sang with the staple singers, you know, in some small nightclub. And uh, and that's kind of like how my fanzine took off, uh, just by word of mouth and people saying, hey, there's this teenage kid in New York who finds out what the Stones are doing. And, um, and at first, you know, it wasn't eyewitness reports because I was too young to even get into some of these clubs, but I knew grownups who would go to these nightclubs. And so, uh, you know, people that I would see at record stores or people whose numbers, phone numbers I had, and I would call them up like, hey, you know, you went to the Ritz. Well, no, by the time the Ritz came around, I was old enough to go to clubs. But certain clubs, you know, oh, Max's or CBGB's, like what happened last night? And, you know, they would tell me the story and I would just put it in the fanzine. And that's how it took off. And that's exactly why I kind of wanted to have that backdrop at the top of there was no internet, there was no way to get information. You were, in essence, Twitter. You were Facebook. <laughs> you had to get the information, print it up, and mail it out to people who wanted to know this. That's the other thing, right? Snail mail. That was it. And, you know, licking stamps and, you know, 
and, you know, running to the mailbox and, you know, and mailing these out or to the post office and mailing it out and keeping track of, you know, subscriptions on, a, on an index card or whatever, uh, you know, oh, this person ordered the next six issues. And, uh, it was a lot of physical work. And I think that's why, you know, it was so rare for people to do it because, you know, now, I mean, I go on Facebook and I get hit up every day and like, join this Rolling Stones Facebook you know, club or page or whatever. Back then, you really had to work on it. To work on a like one page could take you a whole day, you know. And if there were typos, you had to, you know, correct the typo. You know, use whiteout or they had this stuff. You, you probably never even heard of this stuff, but it was called correct type. It was I don't remember little, that. Oh, is it like a little white thing you'd put in and type over it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you said, yeah, it was like powder. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't always work, you know. but my point is, is that it really could take you like a day to type up a page and to like lay out a page and it was really cut and paste and then to add photos and sometimes the photos wouldn't reproduce properly and there was just a lot of work to do. So it, you had to be dedicated and I was, I was a crazy dedicated Rolling Stones nut and a journalism nut. Not that I was doing great journalism, I do, I know that. But um, but I was following the principles of journalism that I learned in in high school. Back then, cutting and pasting, like you say in the book, was cutting and pasting, literally with scissors. Literally, yes. Scissors and glue. Yes. Right. The magic of the story is that this, the fanzine is, is starting out in humble beginnings and the trajectory is moving in the right direction. It's now 1979. Emotional Rescue is uh, about to come out and... You get wind of the stones are in the city. Well, they have been, but they're going to be at this promotional event, this press event. And you take it upon yourself to bring a couple of copies and head on over there to hopefully get to see them. And the rest is history, isn't it? Yeah. And so the thing is, I wasn't on the guest list, you know, but I found out about this party and it was an afternoon party, like three o'clock in the afternoon. And so I go and I see them walking in. So there were two limos. So Charlie didn't come to this thing, which, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, Charlie's quitting the Stones rumors sprouted from that. Like literally in the next day's New York Post, it was like Charlie Watts to quit the Stones, you know, all because he just didn't want to take the flight to New York, you know, or some say he missed the flight, whatever. But the other four guys were there. And so two limos, and this is like everything you need to know in some ways about the Stones dynamic. So Mick comes in his own limo <laughs> and then Keith and Ronnie and Bill Wyman come in another limo. So uh, Mick's limo shows up first and, uh, you know, he gives off a vibe like, you know, don't come near me. You know, he didn't say it, but that's the vibe he gave off. Yeah. And so I'm like, all right, I'm not going to go near him. And then, uh, you know, the next limo, shows up like 15 minutes later and it's Keith and Ronnie and Bill and they get out. And by then I realized like, you know what? I'm not going to give them the copy of the fanzine now on their way in because they're going to lose it or, you know, or just not give a crap about it when they're in a party, you know, being interviewed and posing for photos, it will get lost or they will just chuck it in the garbage. So I said, you know what? I'll wait for them to come out. And I do. Mick comes out, gives that same vibe, you know, come near me, just gets into his limo, pulls up, but then Keith and Ronnie and Char uh, and Bill come out, and you know it's like the opposite. And Keith stops to sign autographs, and uh, 
shake hands, you know, and pose for pictures. And then, so that's why it's the cover of my book. And you can see me there in the background. And by the way, I had no idea that this photo was taken at the time it was taken. But there were just like various paparazzi on the street. And so if you look at it closely, um, that's me. Like Woody, Ronnie, is cut off. That's his hand reaching for that. And I'm like, hey, hey, guys, I do this fanzine about you. you know? And um, he's like, all right, yeah, let's see. And uh, But yeah, so he gets cut out of the picture because the photographer was going for Keith, obviously. Um, but that picture captures the moment that I met the Stones for the first time. So I knew that it had to be the cover of the book. That was June 26th of 1980. And, um, and I had no idea the photo existed until years later when I was going through that particular photographer's files. Again, you know, hard copy files, like a file cabinet, a metal file cabinet. And I was just going through and it's like, oh my God, I pull it out. It's like, this captures me meeting the Stones for the first time. Uh, so, uh, and the great thing is, is I already knew I was going to call the book Under Their Thumb because it was just such a perfect title. And for some reason, just by coincidence, Keith has his thumb out. I'm looking at the copy on your desk behind you. Thank you for the product placement. Um, yeah, and then, you know, he's got his thumb out. It's like, okay, that's the cover of the book. <laughs> God, that's perfect. Everything just worked out. Yeah. And you were able to hand them uh, the copies, and you could see them in the car enjoying and flipping through it, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, so Ronnie has, I give it to Ronnie. And the reason I didn't give it to Keith is because more people were surrounding Keith. That's just the way, it, you know, it was or is. And I saw a moment where Ronnie had no one around him. So I go to Ronnie and give it to him. He was with his wife, Joe, or girlfriend at the time, Joe. And um, give it to him. And, you know, we make small talk very briefly. I had like um, somehow through connections that I was making, I got a copy of the album cover um, and I put it on the front cover of the issue. So Ronnie was like, hey, how'd you have that? It's not coming out till today. And, you know, so I said, oh, you know, I have my connections, whatever. And he says, yeah, looks good. looks good. You know, he's just humoring me. Uh, at this point, I'm 17 years old. And it's two days after my high school graduation, by the way. And so he gets into the limo, Ronnie, and Keith gets into the limo, and Ronnie is like holding it on his lap. And I could just see into the limo briefly, uh, Keith is kind of like elbowing, like, hey, what the fuck is that, man? And, uh, and Ronnie's like, that kid over there just gave this to me. And, uh, you know, they look down at the, at the fanzine, they look up at me, you know, they can't tell that I'm 17 years old necessarily. I was pretty tall for my age. I, but they just like smiled at me and like, that's it. And then the limo just rides off into the sunset. But I'm like, okay, the Rolling Stones acknowledge me and acknowledge my fanzine, you know, th that I exist. That's all, you know, right. we'll take it from there. Um, and then I start going up to the Stones office, you know, which is right here in New York. And uh, is it still there? It is not. No, no, no. In fact, it moved. It, it was only there from like the late 70s to the mid 80s. Um, I actually write about that in the book. It's a long story, but essentially, organizationally, the Stones did sort of break up in 19 oh, yeah. during the World War III era, as people call it. They did sort of break up administratively. So that office, which was actually part of Atlantic Records, who was distributing Rolling Stones records, that office like went out of business and you know Keith's people had their you know Jane Rose got her own office and mixed people this guy Tony King 
you know, they got separate offices like a block away. <laughs> just just to tell you like how much the lines in the sand were drawn, you know. Separate limos. It's separate limo, right, exactly. Exactly. Now separate offices and separate people taking care of their separate needs and but anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, no. So I, I would start going to that office. So now it was like the summer of 1980, the fall of 1980. And I knew that like, hey, the Rolling Stones, or at least Keith and Ronnie, acknowledge me. They know who I am. And um, and so now I can just go into the office and say, yeah, here's the issues. They know who I am. And, you know, and, and they all said to me like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll give them the issues. You know, and at this point, I'll, you know, I'm 17, 18. And as naive as I was, I was like, yeah, they're not going to pass them along. But then I start to find out that they really are because what started happening is um, I got to know some paparazzi photographers who would like stake them out. This particular brand of paparazzi, they were like just rock and roll fans. So they weren't, you know, like the bad paparazzi. I mean, some of them were assholes, but. But mostly they just like love the Stones or they love the Beatles. You know, John Lennon was still alive. So they would just stake out, you know, recording studios or the Dakota, you know, to try to catch John coming in and out and Yoko. So they would stake out the Stones and, uh, you know, coming out of nightclubs or recording studios. And they would see the Stones holding my issue and then told me like, hey, Bill, hey, teenage Bill, you know, the Stones really do like your fanzine. And I mean, like I said, you know, I'm 17, 18 years old and it's like, oh my God, you know? And it reaches a point where I feel like I could maybe like drop out of NYU because where well, I was majoring in journalism because, you know, I'm already doing what I want to do. Yeah, right. It sort of snowballs, the fanzine snowballs from there. And then what the paparazzi guys start telling me is that they started using my name, the paparazzi, to, uh -huh. to the stones. So if Mick is coming out of some fancy restaurant, they'll say, hey, Mick, we're shooting this for the Beggar's Banquet fancy. All right, all right, yeah, yeah, let's do it. We'll do it quick, all right. You know? And it's like, oh, my God. And it just becomes like this beautiful cycle. <laughs> and, and I'm getting these photos that are exclusive photos. And so my stupid little fanzine that I'm putting together with the scissors and glue all of a sudden is getting like these little exclusives that matter to us Stones fans. They might not matter to anybody else, but they matter to us. You know, that Keith, you know, got on stage and jammed with, uh, you know, some guy at Trex nightclub or, or Ronnie played at the Peppermint Lounge with some reggae band, you know, stuff like that. And it's that beautiful cycle that you describe that's snowballing into the fanzine transforming, graduating, if you will, into the official newsletter around 1983. So a few years had passed. All those seeds had blossomed into a fantastic, you know, a tree at this point. And that must have been like the pinnacle, right? He's like, I'm in. I mean, your work was going to be worldwide. Yeah. I think the line that I use in Under Their Thumb is um, it wasn't even a dream come true because I never even dreamed it. It was like so bizarre. I mean, I was just enjoying doing the fanzine and I realized like maybe I could do this for a living even though I'm like literally making like a few hundred dollars a year, you know, but, um, but you know, and at, at the time I was still living with my parents, but then, right, then I, I move out, uh, in the summer of 1983, uh, into 
Keith Richards' pharmacist's apartment, by the way. Uh, and that's not an exaggeration. Uh, if you read the book, you'll know. And I'm still in touch with him, by the way. Oh, that's crazy. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I just saw him a couple of months ago. And because uh, he came to New York, and he lives in Israel now, and I went to go visit him there. That's a, that's a whole big, long story that's in the book. Um, but yeah, he became like Keith's right-hand man. He's a licensed pharmacist. So he really was Keith's pharmacist. And he let me take over his apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And I'm living there, and I get a phone call from the Stones management saying, you know, Mick and Keith love your fanzine and they want to make it the official newsletter. Uh, we're going to advertise it in the next album. Um, you know, you'll get to go to their recording sessions. You'll interview them. Uh, you know, uh, is that okay with you? <laughs> Let me think about it. Let me think about that. And next thing I know, I am literally at Mick Jagger's house on the Upper West Side. Uh, he lived on 81st Street and West End Avenue uh, in a five-story townhouse. And I am interviewing Mick Jagger. And then the same day, I am interviewing Keith down at the Stones office. And uh, at that point, it was literally the day after my 21st birthday. And that's exactly where I want to go next, because it's that <laughs> meeting with Mick up for you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Phil. Uh, that meeting with Mick Jagger is an iconic story, and uh, you saw Mick in a, in, a, in a way no one else has. In in the comfort of his house, right, and so he was totally relaxed. He and Jerry, Jerry Hall, they were out when I first showed up, and some assistant lets me into the house, and I'm just sitting around, and uh, I don't know where they were, but they come home. It was like noon time. And so, oh yeah, and he introduces me to Jerry Hall. Yeah, Jerry, this is the guy that does you know, the magazine, you know, and and, uh, and she was very sweet and all that. She gives me a glass of Minute Maid orange juice. She offers me uh, from their fancy refrigerator. They had this um, like big, and now it's kind of co not common, but uh, it's like a big glass, like you'd see in a grocery store. And but they had one, yeah, like a see-through fridge, right? And um, and she was pouring herself some Minute Maid. For real, it was Minute Maid orange. I remember the brand. And uh, she offers me some, so I say yes. And then Mick says, "Hey, he's like checking his mail." All right, all right, let's do it, Bill. You know. And so we go up these steps, and we just keep circling and circling because it was a five-story townhouse. And we started on the ground floor, and he's taking me all the way up to the fifth floor to his private den. And uh, and the interview's going well. Oh, before the interview, he says, have you heard the new album? And of course, he doesn't mean the new album. He means the next album. So sure. Undercover, which was going to feature the ad for my fans, right. um, was about to come out. This was in September. The album came out early November. So it's like a month and a half before it's coming out. Ask me if I've heard it yet. I tell him no. So he literally, you know, plays me an advanced copy and yes, I'm sitting there saying, like, how do you, I could never have dreamt this. I am sitting, listening to the next Rolling Stones album with Mick Jagger in his house. But yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, the thing that worked for me back then, always, I, I mean, through the years, is that I was able to keep right. this inside. You know? So I was cool, calm, and collected, to borrow the song title. And so I sat there and I listened to the album. I questioned him about a few things. I remember, um, so he plays me the song Too Much Blood. Sure. 
And it was hard for me to understand the lyrics at first. <laughs> uh, you know, Mick is, ah, as too much blood. You know. And what is Mick, Mick doing? Is he moving around? Is he grooving with it? Yes. Yes. He's like dancing to his own record. Um, at times, like in his own world. And right. So that's a show unto itself. Sure. <laughs> right. And um, and so he's he's doing this little dance or whatever. And he and he wasn't playing with me the full songs, you know. He oh, okay. A bit or three quarters of it. Um, and so he would like go over this, you know, old fashioned turntable, you know. So he's like picking up the needle, dropping it on the next song. As he would go from song to song, would he ever like explain anything or make or make any faces or gestures? So, um, so right. So he played um, "Want to Hold You," you know, Keith's yeah. song, album, and he was very proud. He says, "I played drums on this on the demo." <laughs> I just played that demo on a radio show I did last over the weekend. Well, he play if it's the same demo, he plays drums on it. I guess it was just him and Keith in the studio, uh, you know, during the early germination of that song. And so then, right, so he plays too much blood, and I say, "Are you singing too much blow?" <laughs> because right, it would make sense that the guy was so high that he hacks up his girlfriend and puts her in the refrigerator. Anyway, just like, no, no, it's too much blood. And he goes like this to his veins. Too much blood, blood. You know? Oh, okay. And then he runs to the other side of the room, his private den, and he gives me a sheet of paper that has, well, a few sheets of paper that have the handwritten lyrics. Oh, my God. To the whole album. So it's like, well, again, like, I couldn't have dreamed this. It's just insane. But anyway, yes. So I know where you're going with this story, where you want me to go with this story. I'm sorry, Bill. No, no, I know. This is everyone's favorite story. Or one of. Yes. Many, many stories in the book. And thank you. So, so, you know, he finishes playing me the album. You know, we have like an interesting conversation about a lot of things. And he's not, to be perfectly honest, Mick is not as good an interview as Keith is. Because Mick, he kind of likes to hold things, you know, close to his chest a little bit. And he... um you know, he could give you like a one word answer or a one sentence answer where Keith like can go off, you know, and you, like you have to shut him up sometimes if you're limited for time when you're interviewing him, you literally like have to just go to the next question and cut him off. Mick can be very succinct for better or for worse. And, uh, but at one point he was talking and I wanted to see what, um, no, no, I know what it was. I asked him, what music are you listening to? And he says, oh, good one, Bill. And he gets up and he goes into this alcove and he's like calling out to me. I could hear him flipping through albums, by the way. And I guess that's where he kept all his LPs, like in a little closet. And he's calling out to me and he says, well, I'm listening to uh, you know, Herbie Hancock, the only one that's got Rocket on it. And uh, I bet Midnight, I should just be the burden on this one. And um, as he's flipping through, I say, let me see what books he's reading. So I get up to go take a look at his bookshelf, except as I do it, I accidentally knock over this glass of orange juice that I had at my feet, and now I see my OJ, like, rolling down the river, you know, onto his fancy rug, his, you know, 16th century Persian rug or whatever, and I'm like, uh, Mick, uh, Mick, Mick, and there's no answer, because he's still in that alcove, and I'm, like, peeking around, and Mick, Mick, He's like, I'm listening to Prince. I'm listening to... Oh, he's still rallying off these names. Well, no, at that point, he wasn't talking anymore. <laughs> so I just, like, there was no response at all. 
And it turns out he must have seen it somehow. I don't know how, but he must have seen it or been aware of it somehow. Because next thing I know, he's coming back into the room and he is holding a towel and he gets down on his hands and knees and is blotting up my mess. And I'm standing over him. I'm 21 years and one day old. And I am standing over one of the most famous rock stars in the world who's on his hands and knees blotting up my orange juice. And that's a vision I will never forget the rest of my life. And he was very nice about it, actually. Obviously, I was embarrassed. Oh, my God, this is my first time in his house. And I'm just this stupid kid, you know. And uh, But he was really great about it. Um, you know, it's like, no, don't worry about it. It's all right. You know, and I say, oh, well, you know, I kind of made a semi-joke. Well, don't tell Jerry about it. Right. Like, no, don't worry. This is my room. Yeah, don't worry about it. But, I mean, it's so wonderfully written in the book. You can picture it. It's like a comedy sketch. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. There was one more detail, though, I love. And Mick had a special way of answering the telephone, did he not? Yes, yes. So we're sitting there, and the phone just rings and rings, and Jerry Hall is not picking it up downstairs. And so he finally grabs the extension up there in the den. He <laughs> he puts on this voice. It's kind of like a like a Spanish accent, I guess, but like an old lady or something. It's like, hello? And uh, someone must have asked for Jerry. And he goes, who is calling? And he goes, oh, yeah, all right, hold on. I'll go get her. You know, it's like, Jerry, pick up. And I think, you know, he pretends to like be his cleaning lady or something in order to screen his own phone calls. <laughs> DIY, do it yourself. Do it yourself. And by the way, one time when I called the house and he picked up, he did the same thing. And of course, I knew exactly what he was doing. But I went through the whole rigmarole and said, hi, I'd like to speak to Mick. And I was calling. You know? So there you go. <laughs> and you said, it's Bill. He goes, oh, hi, Bill. He just drops it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, hi, Bill. Oh, that's fantastic. So so, so that's in the, that's in the background. You're interacting with Mick. But one of the fantastic relationships, there's so many threads going on in the book and one of them is that you're getting closer with Keith and your interactions with him are just fantastic but he came through in a wonderful way when you were kind of going through a tug of war uh, with the newsletter and the Stones business associates Keith really came and gave you some some good advice and good support didn't he yeah it was really amazing because he was like taking my side against his own business managers which was like kind of amazing so, well, you know, when my fanzine became the official newsletter, it was tied into this whole merchandising campaign, which the Stones hated, which is kind of ironic because, you know, look, look what they do now. I mean, I'm sure everyone who's watching this right now, like you and I, get an email from the Stones every day, like, buy this piece of junk and be, you know, whatever with all due respect no i mean some stuff whatever buy the 40 different versions of hackney diamonds buy the the you know this hat and this jacket and blah 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 right but if you go back to 1983 the stones resented like the slightest little thing and so this was all tied into their business manager mm. uh part of it was rupert lowenstein who i'm sure you know a lot of people are familiar with his name um you know, he hooked up with like this licensing agent guy, Gordon Bennett, who you just mentioned, and they were going to just like merchandise the crap out of the stones. Mm -hmm. And that's why, I mean, some of that stuff, um, you know, did actually, you know, take place. So, you know, uh, like, 
it was like Rolling Stones bubblegum. I never saw that. As the Rolling Stones bubblegum. It was actually, it wasn't so much about the gum. It was, they made miniature album covers. Oh, that's pretty cool. So there's that. There's, I mean, one of the greatest things was the Rolling Stones phone. Which, like, I, I could have bought them, like, by the hundreds for, like, $30 wholesale at the time. And now, if you look on eBay, it's, like, 400 easy. Um, so, it was really was the Rolling Stones phone in the shape of a tongue, like what you have behind you there on the poster. But the tongue comes out of the lips, and that's, like, the receiver. Anyway, so the Stones, like, hated all this crap. But Rupert Lowenstein, like, signed them into that deal. And my involvement was... Mick and Keith actually said, like, if you're going to do all this crappy merchandise, get that kid, Bill German, involved to do his newsletter for all our fans. And that will, you know, make it not as tacky. I mean, what I like, Mick and Keith really love my fancy. I mean, it, it like blows my mind. But anyway, so it all became included in like that whole package. You get my fanzine, you get all the fan club chashkas and merchandise and all that, and all these offers for items. There were supposed to be a couple of items that never, you know, never saw the light of day. There was going to be satisfaction perfume and there was going to be Jagger jeans. But none of that ever came to fruition. Uh, and um, so... Uh, the thing is, is so this merchandising guy and Prince Rupert, they wanted to like sort of take control of my fanzine, long story short. And it was all like this legalese that got written up in a contract by like the most powerful show business law firm in the country, if not the world, um, based in Los Angeles. And they're sending me you know, this contract and I'm like 20, 21 years old at the time. When I see this contract, like about how, you know, the Stones organization will own all the rights and will own the rights, not just to all the future issues, but even like the back issues that I did in my pajamas, in my bedroom and all that stuff. Um, and I was like, oh, my God, like, this is miserable. And uh, just by happenstance, I found out that Keith was doing a, a shoot for NBC Friday Night Videos, if people remember that. You can find it on YouTube. He did a couple of episodes, actually. But this was the one that aired in early 1984. So I find out that he's doing this in a bar that's literally just a few blocks from my apartment on the Upper East Side. And I say, I'm just going to go over there. And so, of course, the bar was closed for the day, you know, just so they could do this video shoot with Keith. And, um, and I knock on the door and some technician from the TV show opens the door and I'm saying like, Tell Keith Bill German is here. And he's like, all right, fine. And next thing I know, the door opens and says, yeah, Keith said, come on in. And I talked to Keith and I said, Keith, you know, this contract is making me miserable. You know, the contract with your business managers is making me miserable. And he said, uh, you know, don't sign it, man. You know, it's like, you've got the power, you know. And he expressed to me that, um, that like the whole thing, my fanzine had already been advertised in the undercover album and had already gotten press that like the Stones are hiring a fan to do their official newsletter. And it was a great story. And it appeared in like rock magazines, like circus magazine and it appeared in daily newspapers across the country because it was like this cute little 
human interest story. You know, the Rolling Stones have a new album out called Undercover. And by the way, they just hired one of their fans to do their official newsletter. So it was like a great story. So if I backed out, the Stones would look kind of bad. Like people would wonder like, wow, what happened? That was such a great feel-good story. And so that's what Keith told me. It's like, hey, man, you've got all the cards. You know, there's... And, um, and so long story short, I did not sign that contract and we just kind of operated with a handshake agreement, me and the Rolling Stones business managers. And I never, you know, I never got like a big time lawyer to look at the contract. Things just like, we just did it all on a handshake, but it worked and it brought me closer to the Stones and they really didn't like any part of that merchandising thing. The only part they liked was, you know, they told me this was my fancy. That's the only part of that whole operation that they liked. I mean, that's why I was there. Right. To give me like an air of legitimacy. And and as Keith told me, like I have this on a cassette tape somewhere, you know, they felt like a fan could understand what other fans want. And it's true, you know, and I think that's the appeal of my book. Like, you know, you were saying earlier that like you were able to, put yourself in my position when you're knocking over the glass of orange juice. Because yes, I'm not some big time journalist. I'm not Barbara Walters interviewing Mick. I'm just a kid. I'm a fan. And and that's it. And I, I was put in this, you know, remarkable, unique position. Love that story about Keith because it, it goes to show that, you know, Keith was looking out for you and, you know, definitely was there to lend a hand and say, hey, there's two ways to do it. But the power is all yours. I mean, you know, there are many ways he could have responded and he was, he gave you that confidence. I think that says a lot about Keith. It's a great testament Absolutely, to absolutely. And, and then, of course, you know, he helped with the content a lot. He was like my best source, you know, pretty much, you know. So he would tell me things, you know, oh, you know, we're going back in the studio and you know, blah, 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 blah. And so, yeah. As much as you were getting closer with Keith, uh, you probably had an even deeper relationship with Ronnie and your working relationship with him was growing as well. You helped co-write a book with him, um, focusing on his art, and you were very close with him and his family. You had a quite insight to him. What would you say from your perspective was his dynamic in the band? Because he had a very unique position to kind of be positioned between Mick and Keith. Were you able to get, you know, essence of that when you saw them together? Yeah, well, he always took a back seat. To them you know like there's a story i tell in the book that's a little you know later on it's like in the 1990s and it's uh when keith comes to visit ronnie in the studio uh in a rehearsal studio uh when ronnie is rehearsing for his own solo tour for his slide on this tour and keith comes and just because of the timing of it keith was coming out with his solo album main offender and Ronnie just came out with slide on this and he's about to tour, but Keith pops in in the middle of the night and all of a sudden it's about Keith. And so like Ronnie's rehearsal all of a sudden comes to a stop. And now we're listening to main offender, which was great, you know, for me and all that, but it's just all of a sudden Ronnie just gives it all up, you know, his own stuff for Keith. And so I would see that dynamic a lot. And, um, you know, it just happens even in terms of like songwriting credits that Ronnie doesn't get that he deserves. This is through the years, you know, like it's only rock and roll. You know, we know the story about that. And um, and it just happens, you know, throughout his history with these guys. And I kind of think it goes back to something he got used to as a kid when he had these two older brothers 
who used to beat the crap out of them, quite literally, just for fun, roughhousing and all that. And he worshipped them, even though they were beating the crap out of them. But they also turned him on to, you know, blues music and skiffle music and all that. And uh, Howlin' Wolf, you know, they turned him on to and all that. Um, and so he looked up to his brothers, even as they were kicking the crap out of him, literally kicking the crap out of him. And then he gets involved with the Stones, which is a group that he wanted to join when he was a youngster, you know, and he goes to see them, relative youngster. And, and he winds up being in the band. So he'll do anything. And of course, you know, subjugates himself to be with Mick and Keith. And they are the two older brothers again. So it's the same dynamic. And, uh, you know, and there it is. And so he'll never have like an equal say. I mean, it took decades. But, you know, through the 1980s, you know, certainly. Uh, I mean, and that goes financially. You know, he wasn't getting an equal share. Um, you know, he was salaried as opposed to being like a share member, you know, uh, yeah, a shareholder, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And so I saw that a lot with him and, um, and just, he would always like put other people ahead of himself, other people's needs ahead of his own needs. And, you know, he's just like an easygoing guy. And I guess that's why he winds up playing with so many different bands, um, you know, for better or for worse. I don't know, maybe he's seeking approval from people. I don't know. <laughs> Get him on the couch. But um, but definitely, you know, the relationship that he had with his two older brothers, I think, you know, is reflected in his relationship with his two older brothers, Mick and Keith. Yeah. And I, I think that's a fascinating sketch of their dynamics. I mean, it's really a, the stew of why well, it's been working for the last, I don't know, how long has Ronnie been there now? 50 years or whatever it's been. 75 yeah yeah so it's just like uh there's no secret why it it works and ronnie is just this thing in the middle that kind of evens everything out but at the risk of kind of putting himself in a limited position right so yeah so then i do see him in the 1980s i see him like get involved um he used to call himself the henry kissinger of rock and roll for better or for worse i know kissinger's come up recently but um uh, but yeah, and he used to try to like broker a truce between Mick and Keith. He did it also. Yeah, I tell a story in the book. Uh, he did it with Bob Dylan in order for them to play at Live Aid. He goes to Keith and says, you know, hey, Bob would love us to play. And then he goes to Bob and says, hey, Keith wants to play. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he was always kind of like trying to make nice with both sides. And then, you know, that's just his nature and it works for him. I guess moving on to Charlie then, did Charlie ever figure out who you were in the, <laughs> in the, in the group? I mean, he was sort of a distant mystical figure to you, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a running joke that I had all these like, you know, near misses with him, uh, where I was supposed to interview him, uh, and it just never happened for various reasons. So he is like the only member of the Rolling Stones that I didn't interview other than Brian Jones. But but yeah, I mean, I interviewed Ian Stewart. I interviewed Mick Taylor and then, you know, all the others. But um, for some reason, it just never worked out with Charlie. And I just felt like he was a, like, you know, a British eccentric guy. And like, you know, I had nothing in common with him as much as I worshipped and adored him. And so, uh, and he was like the only one that I was like a little bashful around. 
and you know, and Charlie obviously was a very introverted guy. I mean, that's just part of his was part of his nature. So I tell one story in the book where I literally sat next to him in the studio for three hours, no exaggeration, and neither of us got up to pee. Uh, Keith and Ronnie went in and out, but Charlie and I, I was sitting literally like five feet away, I guess, from his drum kit. And he would occasionally like, just like, look at me, we're making eye contact, but we didn't say a single word to each other in three hours. And then afterwards, we all went out to the lounge, you know, um, Mick and Bill Wyman were not there. This is in the recording studio during the Dirty Work session. And it's Keith and Ronnie and Charlie and me, and we're sitting on these sofas in the lounge. And again, like, I didn't say a word to Charlie. He didn't say a word to me. And I guess Keith and Ronnie must have thought, like, that we already know each other. So they didn't introduce us. And and it just became like a running joke, I mean, I guess. Uh, that said, I was devastated when he passed and, uh, and all that. But, yeah, so the thing with Charlie, of course, is, you know, everyone asks me, is it true? Is it true? What happened? Really, there are only two people who know the true story, and one of them is deceased. And so that's Charlie and Mick. And, um, but I will tell you this. So when it happened, first of all, Ronnie was not invited to those meetings. This was um, late October. They were, they went to Amsterdam for like a week uh, from like late October into early November, like the last few days of October into the first few days of November. And it was basically like a, uh, you know, like a shareholders meeting, you know, because they have their companies are based there for tax purposes, are based in Amsterdam with Prince Rupert Lowenstein. And um, so, you know, it is, it's Mick and Keith and Bill and Charlie are there. And no Ronnie, he's literally not invited because he is not an equal member at this point, financially speaking. So uh, I then hear from Ronnie, who got it from Keith, as well as from the aforementioned um, uh, pharmacist, Keith's pharmacist, who also spoke to Keith. And they told me like slightly varying stories, but essentially what happened was um, Mick refers to Charlie as my drummer. So yes, that part is true. But I, I'm not sure if it happened from the stories I got. I'm not sure if it happened um, uh, over the phone or in person during the meeting. Um, but... But somehow it happened and Charlie just like let it stew for hours. And he was already dressed. People say, but I think Keith even in his book says, you know, but then Charlie puts on his cologne and his, you know. No, Charlie was like still dressed and all that. But he was just like sitting around in his hotel room and it's just like burning him up. Or maybe the phone call came. I, I'm not so sure. It's like varying stories. But yes, he gets pissed off that Mick referred to him as my drummer and what i heard was that i heard that it actually happened in the meeting um that that mick just said something like oh this shouldn't matter to you because you're just the drummer or you're just my drummer or something like that but it didn't sit well with charlie and it was a very bad period for all the stones including charlie and uh charlie goes down and yes and this part I, i'm pretty sure it happened you know mick opens the door and charlie attacks him I've heard that it was just one punch and that's it. And that there is no like hanging Mick out the window or, you know, or pushing him into a plate of salmon or something like that. And a lot of that are 
Keith's embellishments and God bless Keith, you know, he's a great storyteller, you know, great raconteur and comes up with these stories. But, and Keith said something about his jacket that Mick was wearing his jacket. The end of the story, this part like syncs up is that, and this is why I question Keith's version of the story is that the, the, the whole punchline of the story is that Keith runs into Charlie in the hallway when Charlie is coming back. And says to Charlie, you know, where are you coming from? Because it's like three, four in the morning. And Charlie says, I've just punched Mick Jagger in the face and just keeps walking. And that part of the story, like, I'm pretty sure is like 99% true. <laughs> you know, like, or, you know, what I mean is that one syncs up from both yeah. versions of the story that I got, meaning Keith did not witness it. So again, you know, but Keith embellished, you know, right, you know, muddy waters painting the sea, right, and all that, you know. And there were things that Bill Wyman has told me directly that, like, you know, Keith got it wrong, or Keith is embellishing. You know, Hitler dropped a B one on my bed. You know, but again, these are great Keith stories, and it fills a book, and it was a great book and a bestseller, and sold you know a hundred times more than my book. And he goes on talk shows and tells great stories. So. um, but as, like I said, the point that I want to bring to this is that um, is that I'm pretty sure Keith was not there because he runs into Charlie in in right. the hallway of the hotel and says, "You know, where are you coming from?" And Charlie said, "I just punched Mick Jagger in the face." So, man, I, the reason why well, it's a great story is so it can never be overtold that story it's you can hear <laughs> countless times and the reason why i want to bring it up is because uh, mojo magazine recently brought the story up again to mick just a couple months ago okay yeah and okay. he i don't know if he happened to catch the the article but uh oh, mick wants to uh blame it on keith's embellishments and he he was very defensive about the uh, it happening and i wasn't surprised i doubt you're surprised by hearing mick react that way yeah too. Yeah. Well, yeah, Mick is going to downplay. I mean, Mick is not big into historical yeah. stuff and stories and anecdotes to right. begin with, which is why he's never come out with a book and probably never will. Um, but on top of that, right, it doesn't make him look too good. And, you know, and again, you know, Charlie was in a very bad place in his life at that time, and the Stones were not in a good place yeah. you know, that 1984, 85, you know. So, um, so yeah, I could see Mick trying to like downplay it and say like this is all key story, but no, something really did that much. I know, like I mean, my point is I heard it contemporaneously. I really heard it like the first week of November, like you know, like Keith came back to New York and tells Woody what happened, tells Ronnie what happened, tells you know the the pharmacist guy what ha what happened, and um, and I hear it from both of them, and even though their stories differ slightly in the middle. They both come together, ending with Keith in the hallway, running into Charlie after it happened. So whatever. But the point is, it happened. It, yes, Charlie did hit Mick somehow, some way. I don't think he hung him out the window, and I don't think he pushed him into a plate of salmon, but he physically attacked Mick, which is a reflection of what was going on, you know, dynamically in the band at that point. Well, it's a fantastic story. Great legend. It'll continue on. Uh <laughs> yeah, like I said, there's only two people who know the truth, and one of them is passed. Yeah. So, and if Mick isn't telling, then we'll never know.
As we wind down, I've got a couple random questions for you. Like, who was the bigger goofball, Keith or Ronnie? <laughs> Ronnie. <laughs> Intentionally, you know, but yeah. Goofball, I mean, yeah. Yes. <laughs> what was Mick's sense of humor like? Did you get a sense of that? He, well, yeah, he clearly has a sense of humor. Yeah. But he takes his business very seriously. But yeah, I mean, he has a great sense of humor, I think. And I think he's mellowed in recent years from what I could see. I mean, I haven't like hung out with him in a couple of decades or so or whatever, but I think he's mellowed and maybe become like a, a good dad and granddad and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Today, where are the Stones now in your life because of the journey? Are the Stones a group that you're still listening to or do you have a distance towards them? How does that fit in your life? Um, I, I really like the new album. Um, first time I heard it, which was on a laptop, I didn't like the new album. But then when I went out and bought the CD at the pop-up store, because I couldn't find it anywhere else, and I still listen to CDs, because I'm old-fashioned. I still have my turntable hooked up, but I didn't buy the LP version. I really, It really started to grow on me, so I like it. I would love to go see them. I have not seen them uh, since 2019 in Chicago. I write about that in the new version of Under Their Thumb. But I would love to see them this coming tour. I don't, you know, but honestly, the prices are really outrageous. And if I don't get one of those lucky dip tickets, I don't know if I will or whatever. I, I'm not having a heart attack going to see them. And there's part of me also, I mean, you remember the shampoo commercial, don't hate me because I'm beautiful, but like, don't hate me because I've seen some like really special events that I know no matter how good the Stones are playing, and I thought they played phenomenally well in 2019. I mean, fantastic. Like, not even grading on a curve for their age. Like, they were incredible. But as well as they play, there are just certain things that will never match up to what I have in my head of seeing them, not just in small nightclubs like the 100 Club. You know, I wrote about that, um, you know, where Clacton plays with them and Pete Townsend. But just, you know seeing them in, like in Ronnie's basement, even if it was just Keith and Ronnie jamming. So I'm not a fan of the stadium shows, even though I think they kind of have their merit, you know, because like you could do something big or at least like they did on the Steel Wheels tour and the, and, uh, the Voodoo Lounge tour where they had the big balloons and all the explosions and the staircases and yada, yada, yada. Um, I'm just not such a fan of like the modern day stadium show. And so unless it's like really economical for me to do it, um, I guess I'll stay home, but I would love to see it. If it works out, I would love to see it. Uh, as far as hanging out with them, uh, I haven't done that in a long time. It would require require a little bit of work to do that and contacting this person, you know, their phone numbers change so much and stuff like that and dealing with some people who, uh, while some of them are dead, the people I used to rely on for that sort of thing, like literally dead. Others that I just don't want to bother with. These are the people around them. Um, and again, I've written about some of that in the new edition. And, uh, but yeah, but, but I also tell some stories about how Keith, uh, not too long ago, invited me to his hotel room. And I actually got to say no to him, believe it or not. So yeah, and as far as what they thought of the book, people ask me that. And again, I've written about that in the new edition because, you know, the old edition came out in 2009 and then this new edition came out just last year. So I write about their reaction to the 2009 version. Uh, and so I have a few stories about that. But um, but basically, like, Keith is okay with it. Ronnie didn't see it yet. 
Um, but uh, but yeah, there's more stories about that in the new version of the book. And speaking of stories, I was wondering, did you happen to pour literally everything you had in this book, or are there maybe one or two that you purposely saved for yourself and you just prefer no one else know except yourself? Um, no, I think I poured everything in. There are some like little stories that like didn't make it in. I'm not sure what context um, to put them in. But like there was one, okay, I'll tell you. There's one I was uh, flipping through Facebook and someone posted the AHA video. Remember, uh, or you're too young to remember. Um, take on me, take on me. Oh, that sounds familiar. Does that ring about that? <laughs> yeah, it was it really big in the summer of 1905. Oh, okay. And it's half animation and like half of an actress. I don't even think you see the band member. Anyway, it's just like what it's. It's kind of symbolic of like tacky videos of the mid 80s. But anyway, it reminded me of this funny story that I didn't put into under their thumb because it just didn't move the narrative. But at one point, I am in the lounge of RPM Studio uh, where they're working on the Dirty Workout. And it's just me and Keith and Ronnie. And Keith is sprawled out on the, uh, on the sofa, on his back. And asleep or what we assume you know he's asleep and ronnie and i are watching mtv and that video comes on and ronnie says uh, this is my uh, cigarette ronnie says uh, i like this video and i think uh maybe we can do something like that for us for our next one we do half animation half us you know and keith hears that uh, which we thought he was dead asleep. But he, op <laughs> he opens one eye and he says, no, the fuck not. <laughs> and then just closes his eye and doesn't say anything else. Just, no, the fuck not. <laughs> uh, anyway, end of the story is, sure enough, the next video is the Harlem Shuffle video. And there is half animation, half live action. So there you go. <laughs> Whoops. Let that story out of the book. Ah. But there, I just gave you a little nugget that I, I don't think I've given anybody else, but because you asked that question and because I just saw that video come across my vision a few days ago, made me think of that story. I love it. Thank you, Bill. I'm going to do, as we close here, I'm going to do my James Lipton impression. Could you attach just one word to each stone as oh I mention God. them? I'm sorry to do this. Okay. Sorry to do this. You ready? Okay. Keith. Uh, authentic, sincere, authentic. Yeah. Charlie. Um, Debonair. Ronnie. Uh, oh, because you said it. Goofball. But in the best possible way. <laughs> Mick. Charismatic. <laughs> I love it. Bill, to say the least, this was a huge thrill, absolute fun to be with you and to spend some time with you. Can we tell everyone where to find you for more information about the book and just yourself? Yeah, well, BillGerman.com, my website. Um, I haven't updated it in a while, but there's a lot of fun stuff on there. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook. And by the way, I respond to like every email that I get. I'm really good with that. It might take me a couple of days. But you can email through, me through there um, or just find me on Facebook under my own name. There is also an under their thumb Facebook page that I don't really update that much. Um, and the book. Uh, you can find wherever you like to buy books. Um, 
and actually, so yeah, so it's in some brick and mortar stores like Barnes and Noble. But what I have discovered is that they have it for some reason not under R for Rolling Stones, but under G for my last name, Bill German. So try either one. Try the R's or try the G's. If you are an old-fashioned person and going into a brick-and-mortar store like Barnes & Noble. Uh, but it's also available on their website and all the usual suspects wherever you want to buy it. And, um, and yeah, that, that's some interesting stories in there written from the perspective of just a regular fan who had the honor and privilege of hanging out with these guys for a bunch of years. Absolutely. And I didn't, I don't mean that as an exaggeration when I said earlier that this is a must have for any Stones fans library and anyone who I've come across who's read it just has said so many amazing things to say. Like I said, it's a staple, so no one will regret reading it. Um, thank you, Bill, so much. Thank you, Justin. Great. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel where a lot more content is available. From best of lists to Stones interviews and live clips, we've got it all. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook as well. See you next time on Hangfire, Rolling Stones Podcast.